So once again, good morning. Please turn in your Bibles to Titus chapter 2. We continue our series. Oh, thank you. I'm like, why is he doing this? I'm like, the youngest children are dismissed for Children's Church. Thank you, Mike. No, no reason to be sorry. All right, so Titus 2, and we'll read once again verses 1 through 10. Paul writes, But as for you, addressing Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women likewise are to be referent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Father, we come before you, and we humbly take our place at your feet. This is the word of the living God. This is not the word of men. And I pray that you will help me to do justice to your word, to explain it in the way that pleases you and is in accordance with the truth. And that all of us, including myself, will hear and listen with a heart to obey because we know that you are a good, loving God that will only ask things of us that are for our good and for your glory. So meet us now, Lord, we pray through your spirit through your word, in Jesus' name, amen. So last week, as we continue our, ser- our series, Healthy Church, we saw that a healthy church is marked by healthy relationships. And by that, I really mean that there's a culture in the church of togetherness. A togetherness that goes across generational lines. We all should want to be part of a church that is grounded in in healthy doctrine, that's where we started two weeks ago, equipped by healthy leadership, that's what we talked about, that's what we talked about two weeks ago, and that will ultimately, based on those two things, become a place of belonging, of safety, of togetherness, where we can grow. The Christian life is a community project. All right, we're not going to the slides. There we go. It's a community project. Think about the metaphors that the Bible uses for the church. There's a bunch of them. But here are three that we probably know um, most well. The church is a body. The church is a family. The church is a building. And each of these metaphors show us that the church of Jesus Christ, made up of believers in Jesus Christ, is connected. It is interrelated. 
Or to put it in other words, God gives us to one another to keep us from sin and to help us grow. So today, we will continue that whole aspect of the healthy church as a church that has healthy relationships. And again, we will look at Paul and what he, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes to different groups in the church through Titus. Titus is the one that is going to teach these groups, and this is Paul's words inspired by God to each one of them. We're going to see again what is at stake and also how these commands that God gives to these different groups in the people is to be carried out. Now, last Sunday, we looked at what Paul wrote to Titus about older men in the church, older women in the church, and younger women in the church. Today, we will focus on what he says about younger men and what Paul says to Titus himself. And next, not next week, but in two weeks, Lord willing, we will study what God says to bond servants slash slaves. To be honest, I was planning originally to include that in today's message, but it's such a huge topic that raises a lot of questions that I will set that aside for in two weeks. Before, but before we look at the text, I want to say this first. I totally understand that there are things in the Word of God and in this passage that are hard to accept. There's a lot of talk about submission. Wives, submit to your husbands. Bond servants, submit to your, to your masters in everything, whatever that means. There's lots in the Word of God that sometimes offends us, we don't like, we don't agree with. And let me state the obvious, if we want to live God's way, that is going to be far from easy and sometimes seems unfair and not right. So let's say you have a heart to obey God, but you have a boss that is unreasonable and does not appreciate your work. So how does this whole submission as bondservants, how does that play out? Is that right? Doesn't sound right to me. What if you're married and you're married to a mean-spirited spouse? You're supposed to love that person? That's not realistic. What if you struggle with same-sex attraction and you hear what God's word says about holiness of life? When we feel resistance in our heart, for the teaching of God's word, there's always two questions we need to ask ourselves. Here's question number one. Do I correctly understand what God's word says? Do I interpret the text well? Because the word of God has been used to justify the unjustifiable. So we always need to make sure that we understand what God is saying and what he's asking of us. That's where it begins. Which then leads to question number two, when we feel resistance in our heart, do I have any reason to doubt God's wisdom and God's love and God's goodness in asking this of me? And if we are Christians, and we know that Christ is our Savior, in all honesty, we will have to say no. There is no reason to doubt his goodness and his love. He is the only one in the universe who will never, ever lead us astray. 
who knows what is best, who will not betray us, who will never break a promise. Some of us have trust issues because of people that have failed you. And I understand that. But you will never, ever have to feel that way about God because he will never fail you or betray your trust. He is the only one that deserves that full trust and submission. So, once we have settled what the text means, and we know that God can be trusted, it comes down to this very simple but so difficult choice that we make. Will I obey or will I disobey God's word? We either stand over the Bible, so here's the Bible, we either stand over the Bible and we decide what is right and what is wrong, based on our own opinion or based on what culture or society dictates. We either stand over the Bible or we stand under the Bible in submission, humility, and obedience. And that, dear friends, is an inescapable choice that you and I have to make every single day of our lives. Who has the final say? Is it me? Is it my friends? Is it my church? Is it my pastor? Is it culture? Or God? Who is Lord of my life? Who gets to call the shots? It's a simple question. But in our flesh, we so often want to do what we want to do because we think it is better. So once again, as we turn in to the word of God, and we read what God expects of us, remember that image over or under God's holy word. So with that in mind, let's look at verse 6, where Paul writes to Titus and says, Likewise, Titus, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Now, depending on your translation, it may add in all respects or in everything. There's a little bit of a challenge here for translators. Verse 7 in my translation, the ESV, now Paul talking to Titus says, show yourself, Titus, in all respects to be a model of good works. The question is, is in all respects, does that refer to Titus being an example of good works? Or does it fit with what precedes it? Young men, be self-controlled. So Peter and I had a good discussion about that, whipped open our Greek New Testament. And I think there's a lot to say for the interpretation of this Greek text that Paul is saying to the young men, be self-controlled in all respects, in everything. It may be surprising that there's only one item that is listed here as a requirement for young men. Some of you may say, that's unfair. Just compare what he asked of older men and older women and younger women. It's a whole list of things. Now only one thing. Does Paul let young men off the hook? No. My response would be self-control is the one defining need that young men have because the vast majority of young men do not have self-control and it causes huge problems in every direction. 
God is saying through Paul to Titus, to the church of Crete, and through his holy word to us this morning, when it comes to young men in the church, to those who are in the first half of their life, if you will, do not be slaves of your passions and your desires, but exercise self-control in every area of life. In all respects, this is a defining need. This is where young men are weak. So let's think about some of those weak areas, weak spots that have to do with a lack of self-control that are not exclusive to young men. If I mention them, probably all three of them, for most of us, say like, yeah, I, I, that's an issue for me. I struggle with that. I can be tempted in that way. But for some reason, young men are extra vulnerable in these areas, extra sensitive. So here's one, pride. It is a rare thing to see a humble young man. They exist, but they're fairly rare. I was not humble in my 20s and in my 30s. I was a prideful young man. And to be honest with you, I still struggle with that from time to time. Young men have a significant tendency to stubbornness and self-defensiveness. And if you young men say, no, we don't, you've just proved my point. <laughs> so when it comes to pride and self-control, self-control means in this area that we hold our opinions loosely, that we even have a healthy distrust of our own opinions, that we're capable of listening to input from other people that are further on in life, that are further along in their walk with Christ, that most of all we submit ourselves to the teaching of God's word, that we are teachable. Pride. It's a weak spot for young men. Here's another one. Sexual pleasure. Young men are in a season of life, and again, it can be applicable to young women as well, and there's overlap with other groups. Remember, younger, older, Paul doesn't really use rigid ages. He does recognize there are different seasons of life. When you're younger, your passions are stronger. Your sexual passions. And Satan knows it very well. He is like a snake that is hiding in the tall grass, ready to pound you and hit you where you are sensitive and vulnerable. Now, we need to say, and the church, capital C, has not done a good job with this, sexual pleasure is not bad. It is a good thing. God made it. God created it. It's his idea. It's a gift to us. But it is to be celebrated, and I'm using that word deliberately, in the context of marriage, a committed, monogamous relationship between a man and a woman, not before, not outside, that is not God's design, and it will be if we do disobey him to our ultimate harm. Sexual temptation is strong, married or single, older or younger, but especially when you're younger, the temptation looks and feels pleasant and desirable, but it will not ultimately satisfy. And we know that. 
And every time that we give in, the root sinks deeper and deeper and deeper. It hardens our heart, it dulls our conscience. So at some point, we don't even care anymore. I love the Chronicles of Narnia, a famous book written by C.S. Lewis. In there, he talks about a candy called Turkish Delight. Some of you may know what I'm talking about. Turkish Delight is offered in the Chronicles of Narnia by the White Witch to Edmund, who is one of the kids, kind of the key uh, characters in, in the book. And Turkish Delight is Edmund's favorite candy. And so Lewis writes that the witch, the White Witch, gave Edmund, and I'm quoting now, and listen to the way he describes it, a round box tied with green silk ribbon which, when opened, turned out to contain several pounds of the best Turkish delight. Each piece was sweet and light to the very center, and Edmund had never tasted anything more delicious. But this is what happens then. As he eats, he reveals more and more information to the White Witch, who, in exchange for the Turkish delight, exercises more and more power over Edmund. She promises him rooms filled only with candy, but Edmund does not realize that if given that opportunity, he would eat himself, eat until he killed himself. That's what Satan wants, our destruction. And so he dresses it up beautifully. You ever thought about this? If sin was not attractive in some way, we would never do it. There's something about it, be it sexual temptation, be it anger, be it pride, be whatever it is, there's something that draws us in because we're not satisfied with God. Peter says, abstain, past, abstain from passions of the flesh that wage war against your soul. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 says, those who habitually practice sexual immorality will not inherit the kingdom of God. Why? Because by doing so, they prove that they are not regenerated. They don't have the spirit of God. They don't put up a fight. They just give in, give over. There's hope. Hard with the truth of God's word and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And young men, I challenge you, supported by a community of other men, because as men, we're all in the same boat, we can grow in self-control and grow in freedom in Christ and grow in holiness and obedience to God's word. Self-control in all things. Here's one more. Laziness. There is no doubt that rest and relaxation are biblical. God commands us, God gave us an example in his creative labor. So sports, hobbies, cool. But young men tend to go overboard. There is a whole culture within Christianity of Christian, again, females, but especially males, young males, who have bought into the video game movie culture and end up wasting mega hours of precious time that it has come and has gone away. And it leaves them empty and dissatisfied. You're a young man and you desire to be married one day, be a husband and a father, 
That is not how you prepare yourself to be a responsible husband and father who holds a full-time job and knows how to handle his money. I'm not preaching legalism. Legalism says Christianity is a list of do's and don'ts. So if you, don't, if you do these things, you don't do these things, you're fine. That's not Christianity. I am talking about embracing biblical priorities and living with eternity in mind. This life is like a vapor. You know, Satan is after us because he knows if he gets you, he gets a whole generation. Urge the younger men to be self-controlled in every area of life. What a tall order. And with Paul, I urge and plead and preach to myself the very same thing. Be self-controlled, younger men, in everything. Then Paul switches in verse 7 and 8 and now addresses Titus. So let's read again what he says to Titus. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. Then your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. So Paul reminds Titus here, who is pastor elder, to teach what he teaches by example. So he's teaching through his words, but he's also teaching through his behavior. And Paul is challenging Titus and reminding him, your life should be marked by self-control. By so doing, you are a model, an example for other people. Titus, being young himself, could still be a model for other young men in the church. Three things he asks of Titus. First of all, be an example, a model of good works. Invest your time and your energy and your, mo and your money in good things. Good works is a big theme in Titus. Look at chapter 2, verse 13 and 14. Great verses. It talks about our salvation. And then it says in verse 13, Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself, here he comes, a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So salvation is not just safe from sin, safe from judgment, safe from hell. We're safe for a purpose. And the purpose is that we will be zealous, eager, longing to do good works and to be a model of that. I just hear Paul saying to Titus, Titus, you show them. Show them what a purposeful and meaningful life looks like. He goes on and says, make sure that you're teaching, in your teaching you show integrity and dignity. He's not so much talking now, now about teaching right doctrine. He's already made that very clear. He's talking now about the manner, the way in which he ought to do that. His attitude, conduct. Again, talking about this being an example. I remember years ago when I was, became an elder of a church in the Netherlands, the elders who were already serving told me how previously they had received a letter from a church member, and it was just a scathing letter. And it was totally outside of the truth. And it betrayed an attitude of anger and pride. 
And the elders shared with me how when they received that letter, their initial fleshly response was, this is not fair. This is not right. Get your laptop out. Start typing away. We will not accept this. And then they realized, this is not a Christ-like response. We should not lower ourselves to this level of much slinging. We should speak the truth and be firm and honest and open, but with kindness and integrity and dignity and show by our example, not just by what we write, but how we write it and how we conduct ourselves in our conversations with him, that this is the way to live. This is what Christ expects of us. Not just right doctrine, also right attitude. And then thirdly and lastly, he says, have sound, wholesome, healthy speech so that you cannot be condemned. He's now talking about just ordinary daily conversation. In other words, be consistent and avoid hypocrisy. There is nothing that is so destructive than, than to talk the talk and not walk the walk. There's nothing so destructive to be one way when you're on duty, when you go to church, and then when you go home, you be the exact opposite. You know what? That's what turns kids and young people off more than anything else because they see the hypocrisy in their parents. They have this smile on their face and everything is great and wonderful and they bring their Bible to church, but then when they go home, they live the complete opposite of that, consistently. Doesn't work that way, does it? And so Paul does not just want the younger men to be self-controlled, he also wants Titus to be self-controlled in his ministry and by doing so, be an example to all those who watch it. Now, that leads us to this question. Why does God demand this of Titus, other things of young men, and then these other things that we talked about last, week's, last week of older women, younger women, and older men? Why, why does God want us to live a certain way? The answer, of course, is, in, is very simple. God has the right to tell us how to live. I mean, sometimes it's like shocking to think that or to say that, but isn't that the plain truth? He is God. God, the Bible says, is the potter, we are the clay. I mean, it's lunacy to think of the clay looking up to the potter and saying, hey, what are you doing? I, I don't like this. You're clay. You're not the potter. Loved greatly, but you're not the creator. You're the creature. And then to think that what God asks of us is based on his perfect wisdom and his perfect love, that should be enough for us. But in his kindness, he adds, in this passage at least, three more reasons that should motivate us to say, oh God, this is so hard, but I want to obey you and I want to please you and I want to submit to you because you're God but also because, this is reason number one in verse uh, five, that the word of God may not be reviled. We talked last week about how there's an evangelistic aspect to our obedience and our submission to Christ. If you're a husband and you demean your wife consistently 
You are a poor testimony, if you say you're a Christian, of the gospel. If you're an employee and you have a foul mouth at work, you are a poor representation of Christ. So that should motivate us, not to just gain approval. We have been accepted and approved fully by Christ and his perfect sacrifice on our behalf, but therefore now we want to please him. And here's the second reason, verse 8, towards the end. So that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. So now we're talking about opponents. So now we're talking about the fact that when you're a Christian and you want to live Christ's way, you're going to have people that will not agree with you, will turn into opponents, will perhaps even turn into enemies. For Titus, it was the false teachers that were saying salvation is Jesus plus works. For you, it can be your friends, your co-workers, family members, neighbors. If you just make it clear that you do not affirm viewpoints in mainstream culture, you will be quickly labeled intolerant, a bigot, and some who know a little bit more about the Bible will say to you something like this, didn't Jesus say, do not judge? So who are you to say that you cannot agree with that, that you cannot affirm that? Listen to this. This is a crucial point. Don't ever forget that you and I as Christians, we are called to unconditional love, not to unconditional approval. We cannot approve in the name of love what God disapproves. We don't have that liberty, do we? Unconditional love, love the person, absolutely. But perhaps not approve choices or viewpoints or lifestyles. Now we have opponents. Now we have people that maybe are friends, don't want to be our friends anymore. So how do you respond to that? Well, here's the answer. Here's the motivation. Verse 8. Be an example, that's what he's saying to Titus, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Do not read put to shame as shame them. That's not what he's saying. This is not you cancel them. They may cancel you. You do not cancel them. You love them. And you may be able, notice the word, may, there's no certainty, to silence them in the opposition by your good works. I read an article yesterday entitled, Holding Our Peace in an Age of Outbursts, reminding us to be slow to anger, to be slow to speak, to not be without emotion, but to be masters of our emotion, to be calm and not explosive. So often, as Christians, we fail in that area. And we do Christ and the gospel such disservice. In other words, we make the gospel believable and convincing by our actions. On top of the fact that God is God and he has the right to tell us what to do, this, in addition to that, should motivate us to say, oh God, this is so hard, but I want to please you. 
I don't want to be an obstacle for someone. Make the gospel believable and convincing. Now, how do we pull this off? I'm not just talking about doing good when you're maligned, but all of it. How do we say no to bitterness? Some of you have a person in your life that just makes life absolutely miserable for you. And it's tempting and easy and natural to grow bitterness towards that person. You know, it's sin. So how do you say no to that? How do you say no to anger? How do you say no to worry? How do you say no to pornography? And how do you say yes to holiness and yes to God and yes to the truth and yes to freedom? Where in the world are you supposed to find power to love the unlovable and to forgive what seems to be the unforgivable? We have a formidable challenge, dear people. The will of the Lord and the word of God and the standard is so high. And in case you haven't noticed, we are totally inept in our own strength to meet that challenge. In fact, if you try, you will get very discouraged because you're trying to destroy a tank with a pea shooter. It's just not going to work. And it is so discouraging to you because you feel you're making no progress in your Christian life. And you've been a Christian for 30 or 40 years, and you're still struggling with this. Could it be? Could it be that you have exactly done that? Tried. Just try hard. Try harder. And perhaps not made use of what God gives us to fight the fight of faith. In his kindness, God has given us his Holy Spirit, which is the spirit of power. Let me read to you what Ephesians 1.19, what Paul says. He talks about this power of God. He says his power, God's power in our lives through the Holy Spirit. Then he prefaces that by saying the greatness of his power. So it's not just power. This is mega power, great power. Wow, that's cool. And then he has another word before that that says the immeasurable greatness of his power. I mean, this is power, capital P. This is the power, he goes on to say, that God used to raise his son from the dead. And that power, he says in Ephesians 1, is available to you to live the Christian life. So we can never say to God, it's like, well, I have excuses to disobey and to not submit because I can't. That's right, you can't. But God can, and he lives inside of you through the Spirit. Is it difficult? Yes. Is it impossible? No. This is the supernatural life that God wants us to live. He made his Spirit available to us and to tap into his power to live how he wants us to live. It's also the Spirit of comfort. He comes alongside us, and he can reach us in moments of deepest darkness and greatest loneliness. He prays for us when we don't know what to pray. We, we just don't, and I'm talking to myself, we just don't fully grasp, embrace, apply, use what God made available to us through his spirit. And so we live discouraged lives. One more thing that God has given us, and I will loop back to where I started, 
in his, given, in his kindness, he has given us one another. He's given us his church. You know, there's a lot of individualism in this world. One of the things that always makes me sad, maybe you don't notice it, but I do, my wife and I do, go out to eat, sit in the restaurant, booth next to us there may be a couple, or I've also seen fathers and sons, mothers and daughters, and the entire meal, the only thing they do other than eat and drink is this. No conversation, no exchange, no, hey, how you doing? None. Did you know that there is such a thing as a loneliness epidemic? It's a real thing. 20% of Americans say that they often or always feel lonely. And this social isolation is so destructive that it has the same effect on mortality than smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Now Christ comes and redeems us and he puts us together as a family and he says that is not how the church should be. The church should be the exact opposite of that. That's the picture of Titus too. Older women training younger women. Titus modeling and mentoring other men in the church. Not just a church of multi-generations, but a church that is intergenerational, deliberate and intentional in helping one another as we walk the walk of faith across every imaginable barrier. Age, yes. Socioeconomic differences, yes. Likes and dislikes, yes. I felt bad. Ed, Ed was talking to me a couple weeks ago, and uh, he says, uh, I was telling him, like, oh, I'd like to visit sometime and get to know you and your wife. And he says, do you like to fish? I'm like, uh, no, not really, sorry. You like to play golf? Um, no, not really. I'm like, oh, what in the world are we going to do? <laughs> That's okay. I can learn how to fish. I don't know how we can learn how to play golf. But you know what I'm trying to say. But here's the catch. We can teach about it. We can even develop programs to accomplish it. And I'm not against them. But this is key. It begins in each of our hearts. It begins when you come to church to love more than to be loved. It happens when you come to church with a heart that says, Lord, I'm a mess, I'm brokenhearted, but I'm here to serve you. Use me in the lives of someone else. This happens when church is more than an hour and a half on Sunday morning, but an organic part of our lives, how we use our meals, how we spend our spare time, how we spend our money. This happens when there's a change in our heart and church becomes, in the words of Charles Spurgeon, the dearest place on earth with all of its shortcomings. But that's where Christ is and that's where his children are and that's where we want to be. God gives us a spirit God gives us one another, his church. And again, that's another gift that he gives us that we do not use as much as we should. Because the Christian life is a community project. I need you, you need me. So, 
Let me close by three application points. The first two look familiar to you because they're the same as last week because I'm just going to harp on it and harp on it so that it will not just sink into our minds, but I pray by the Spirit, it's not, I don't have that ability, in your hearts. Here's number one. If you haven't done it yet, start praying for each one in the church. Grab a church directory if you don't have it. The last page is a blank page. Bonnie, God love her, used that last page to add names and addresses of people who are not in the directory but who are part of church so that I could start praying for them and contacting them. You know what happens when you do that? You open the door of your heart wide. Mention names, names of the children that are part of the church, and bring them before the Lord. Something will happen inside of you. Start talking to people that you don't know or you don't know well. Ask questions. Listen, and listen well. Show genuine interest. You know, when that happens, when someone takes that kind of interest in you, they say in so many words, I care about you. I want to get to know you. I notice you. You matter to me. That's what we ought to be doing. And here's the new one. Start making church your priority. It is very difficult to connect face-to-face if you are not together face-to-face. I know there can be good reasons not to go to church or participate in church life. Sometimes from doing that. Sometimes health or age limits us, and that's okay. There are seasons to life. But in all honesty, we also have to say that it is about priorities. It is about commitment. Not to me, not to the institution of church, to the Lord and to one another. If you decide to just live your own private life and to not get involved, you cut yourself off from a lifeline, the church. And if you cut yourself off from a lifeline, you also put us in a position where we cannot make use of what God has given us through you to us. And so I challenge you to give yourself to the church, that is, to one another. And to see church life, not just as optional, as extra, as bonus, but as necessary for your spiritual health and for the growth of this church. So, Father, at the end of this service, we come to you and we acknowledge, Lord, honestly and frankly, that this is a tall order. This is not anything that we can do in our own strength. And some of us perhaps, in all honesty, have to say, there's something inside of me that fights against. I don't want this. I don't think it's good. I don't think it's right. But Lord, you can be trusted. There is no one like you. So break that resistance. Comfort those who have gone through experiences that makes it hard to trust even you, even when you deserve our trust 100%. Lord, continue to make us a church that prays for one another, that cares for one another, 
that loves one another, that comforts one another, that teaches one another, that corrects one another. Make us a church, Lord, that makes a difference in this world. Not because of Garden Chapel. I don't care about Garden Chapel in the name, but about the name of Jesus Christ. Oh God, do it. And do it for your honor, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for coming today. Looking forward to next time we can fellowship again. God bless you.